Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week, my producer Miranda and I explore the top stories making waves in the news, and some that are just plain interesting. We connect you with the journalists and people who know the story, and bring you news without the noise, so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, we will be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Nobel Prizes were also being awarded this past week. One of the more interesting Nobel Prizes awarded was for that in medicine, physiology or medicine. It went to two people, Dr. James Allison and Tasuku Honjo, for discoveries that led to a new way to treat cancer by targeting the body's immune system rather than the tumors themselves. Uh, It's led to a host of new drugs, immunotherapy. It's quite expensive, but people are saying that it, you know, works pretty well on uh, certain types of lung cancer and melanoma, which is a form of skin cancer. So for this story, we spoke to Peter Loftus. He's a reporter for the Wall Street Journal. We started off by asking him who were these Nobel Prize winners, James Allison and Tasuku Honjo. Both of them have specialized in immunology, studying the body's immune system. This turned out to be a critical part of what they discovered. And to put it in context, if you think about the mainstays of cancer treatment over the years, things like chemotherapy and radiation, which were effective and are effective in certain situations, but they can also be blunt instruments in the sense that they can destroy healthy cells in the body along with cancer cells. And so that kind of, that causes all sorts of complications. Going back about 15, 20 years, there was another advance in cancer treatment, and that was to target genetic mutations in cancer cells. Now, this immune-based approach is sort of the newest wave and one of the more significant approaches to treating cancer in a long time. These two scientists, working separately but in parallel, discovered features about the body's immune system that led them to figure out that if used certain kinds of drugs to target immune system cells in a certain way, it'll basically better equip the the body's own immune system to go after and destroy cancer cells. So exactly how does it work? I was reading a lot about checkpoints and how a lot of this stuff lets T cells basically attack the cancer cells. T cells are a form of white blood cells, and this is where the magic really comes through in. I mean, what's so interesting about what they discovered was that the body's immune system has sort of its own natural checkpoints or breaks so that it doesn't go overboard and attack the healthy parts of the body. Cancer cells have basically figured out how to exploit that, and so they, in some way they sort of latch on to the breaks of the body's immune system in a way that helps them escape destruction. And so these drugs that have come out of the research from both scientists essentially take the brakes off of the body's own immune system to go after cancer cells in a way that they wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. Some of the drugs that have been able to be developed because of their research, I've seen these like, uh, you know, commercials for these on TV, uh, Keytruda and Opdivo. I think it was former President Jimmy Carter who said that he used Keytruda to treat his melanoma, and it worked out very well for him. I think a lot of people have become aware of them through those things, maybe hearing about Jimmy Carter, taking Keytruda, and yes, the TV commercials now are promoting the use of Optivo and Keytruda, I think primarily in lung cancer, because lung cancer is one of the more common types of cancers and and one of the most deadly. These drugs have, have shown some promise. The research still obviously continues. They're finding out that these things help treat those 
those things, but you know, it's not a hundred percent success rate. So the next step is to find out why it works the way it does work and then who would benefit most from it. There's also a cost thing. Some of these immunotherapies can cost upwards of a hundred grand per person. So that has to be figured out as well. But Dr. Hanjo himself has even said, this is a work in progress. But he, you know, confident in his own work and progress of these treatments says by the end of the century, cures could be found or, you know, just even more therapies can be developed to help out with this stuff. The studies have shown that as welcome as these drugs are and as much as they represent an advance, each drug alone, I think for the most part, only works in a minority of patients that receive it in these studies. What's striking to doctors about these drugs is that in that minority of patients, it can have a lasting effect. It can help people live, in some cases, for years. So the trick now is to try to better predict in which patients these drugs will work and by doing things like biopsying the tumors and then also studying different combinations of the drugs to see if like two or three of them together can do better than one alone. And as you mentioned, I mean, you mentioned the cost. That approach is going to compound the cost factor in the sense that you have, all, each drug alone is relatively expensive. And so combining them is going to be even more of a financial burden. These are effects that we're seeing that uh, from things that that they've been doing for eight, eight years beyond that even, you know, longer than that, that they've been looking into this stuff. Specifically, Dr. Allison, the American, he has a very intimate relationship with cancer of family members uh, had cancer. He had a bout with cancer. It's been around him for a long time. His mother died of lymphoma when he was a child and he has he's lost other relatives. And as you mentioned, he's a survivor. And so I think his, his scientific drive, I think, is what he credits as the main as his main interest in this but he also has said that seeing the older treatments that his relatives have gone through and some of the complications was sort of an added motivation for him to find something that might be better. Because these drugs, in addition to their efficacy, in some cases, their side effects aren't as dramatic as chemotherapy, for instance. It's not across the board that they do have some serious adverse events, but I think doctors are trying to learn to anticipate them better and try to mitigate them as much as possible. Peter Loftus, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. There was not some Nobel Prizes awarded over the week. One of them that did not get awarded was the Nobel Prize in Literature. The Academy had its own Me Too moment because of a French photographer named Jean-Claude Arnault. What do we know about why they didn't hand out this award? We know that Arnault is a husband of an Academy member, and he's actually a recipient of Academy funds. And he ended up groping the Swedish Crown Princess Victoria at an event in 2006. You don't grope... famous princess because you're going to get caught. It just seems so obvious. I don't know what goes through people's heads sometimes. He's been accused of sexual harassment or assault in some cases on Academy property by about 18 women. They also said that he leaked the names of at least seven Nobel winners. He's denied all of it, obviously. This is not the first time that it's happened. They've declined to award the prize at least seven times before. One of them is one of your favorite reasons why why they didn't do it, Brandon. What happened? So they've decided at some points to not give out the award seven times, like you said, in times of war. And when the Academy determines that none of the nominees deserve it. And I just love that concept that they've got seven books or poems or whatever in front of them. And there isn't even one yeah. that's better than the rest. It's a bad year for books. Yeah. So the last time they postponed something was over six decades ago. So this is pretty important. 
And basically why they didn't award it was he was involved in this. His wife sits on the board where who make the decisions for who's going to win the literature prize. There was other people in that committee that also had to resign as a result of this scandal. So they just didn't have all the people in place to make a proper vote on who should win. So they declined to do it. They're actually going to release two Nobel Prizes next year. And we do have an update on what happened to the photographer Jean-Claude Arnault. What happened to him? Jean-Claude Arnault actually appeared in court this week and was found guilty of rape. That sentence carries two years in prison. And he's super entrenched in the highest levels of the Swedish art scene. So he's a pretty well-known and famous guy over there. Thank you, Miranda. Thank you. This is my second favorite story of the week. It's October now, so that means for me, it's Halloween all month long. I love everything spooky, scary movies, haunted hayrides, that whole deal. So I wanted to start getting into that mood. So we're going to be talking about zombies. More specifically, we're going to be talking about ant zombies. There's this crazy story, and I've heard about it for years now, about this fungus that attacks ants, grows within them, and turns them into zombies, eventually forcing them to kill themselves. It's the animal kingdom doing what it does. So for this story, we spoke to Matt Simon. He's a staff writer at Wired. He also authored a book called Plight of the Living Dead, which deals with all this kind of stuff. We start off by talking about who this killer fungus is. It's actually an increasingly well-studied fungus called Ophiocordyceps. Um, And I think it's increasingly well-studied because it is so incredibly fascinating the way that it it takes over the mind of its host and that is ants in you know rainforests in south america and and what's super fascinating about it is individual species of ophiocordyceps fungus will only target one species of ant it is hyper adapted to this one species and none other in the rainforest that it inhabits and that's probably because it's a pretty complex thing to take over another animal so you know, what I'll, I'll just do kind of a, a brief synopsis because it's an incredibly complicated manipulation. What happens is this spore of the fungus lands on the cuticle, which is the exoskeleton of the ant. And what happens is it starts building up pressure in this little bubble of the spore and it starts releasing enzymes that break down the cuticle and actually explodes itself into the ant's body, um, which is just the beginning of the nightmare for the ant. So it begins growing throughout the ant's tissues, and it's actually growing in the muscle fibers and actually prying the fibers apart, which leads to this really strong atrophy, which doesn't make sense based on what's going to happen next. So what happens is the fungus manipulates the ant to stumble out of the colony and up in a very specific position in a tree. And this is consistent across ants. This will happen time and time again. It's about 10 inches off the ground. It will order the ant to bite onto the leaf, uh, the vein of a leaf, which locks it then in that position. And it's hanging upside down. And it's at this point that the fungus dispatches the ant, it kills it and grows out the back of its head as a stalk and then begins raining it, spores. It starts onto- the process all over again. Yeah, onto the, the ground below. And it just so happens to position the ant directly over the colony's trails, <laughs> which of course increases the chances that it's going to infect more ants. And so when the fungus is growing through the muscles, this wouldn't make sense, right? If it's kind of destroying these muscles, how is it then ordering the ant out of the colony? And right. this is really preliminary research. But what they're thinking is that it is actually acting as a kind of 
nervous system in and of itself. So it's actually replacing the nervous system of the ant. So it might be releasing neurotransmitters that mimic those of the ant's own body to actually manipulate individual muscles. So it's like a puppet master pulling strings. And it's just astonishing how this could have evolved, but it probably happened small step by small step. It started more simple than that, of course, but these extra manipulations help the fungus propagate itself to right. get into more ants. And that's what led to the development of this extremely complex manipulation that nevertheless is happening. I can guarantee you that it's <laughs> happening. It's real life. Yeah. It's, it's happening out there in nature. Now, it's kind of crazy. It takes about three weeks for the fungus to grow with inside the ant. And you talk about how, I mean, it's so crazy how delicate this procedure is because, you know, ants live in this colony. When they notice something is amiss and another ant is sick or stumbling or acting weird, Another ant will literally come and take it, pick it up and throw it down to its death, you know, away from the colony, protecting the colony. So the fungus has to be very careful that it doesn't trigger something weird in the ant, that it's going to trigger one of the other ants and suspect it of being some type of intruder. So how does that work? How does the fungus delicately move around this? Because at the very end, as you said, when it makes it go bite the leaf or the tree branch or something, that's the point it takes over the brain kind of. But before that, the ant is still operating normally within the colony. Yeah, that's the really incredible thing about ants. You know, I, I don't want to, to, to short them on credit here. They're really good, at, as you said, at uh, sniffing out their own that happen to be sick because you want to quarantine those individuals before they wreak havoc on the, the rest of the colony, whether that uh, pathogen is a fungus or some other sort of disease. It's a thing that has evolved over many millions of years in ants, which then, as you mentioned, the fungus has to then skirt. So that's probably why this is such a complex manipulation. So they're not, scientists aren't quite sure yet how it's able to avoid detection because ants are really good at sniffing out pheromones. That's how they communicate and largely find their way around. Yet somehow the fungus ends up taking over about half of the body weight of the ant, which you would assume would smell a little different than a typical ant. So because they have this really intricate, unique system of sniffing out bad actors in the colony, that's probably why the fungus is so complex. It, it probably started out killing the ant a long time ago, millions upon millions of years ago. And this is, in fact, that they found fossils that are many millions of years old of leaves with the characteristic bite marks of the ant in them, which presumed that the fungus has been doing this for a very long time. So it probably started out pretty simple where it kills the ant in the colony, but that might get it found out and that would get it dragged out of the colony and into the graveyard where the, <laughs> the sick ants go. I love the way you put it in the article too. It has to drive its host mad yet not mad enough to raise the alarms in the colony. Exactly. So yeah, and you know, and it doesn't really show the symptoms. The ant doesn't really show the symptoms until it is literally stumbling out of the colony as the fungus is ordering it to its doom up, you know, 10 inches up a tree. So, you know, this is you know, as I mentioned, this is an incredibly complex manipulation. It doesn't seem possible, but that is the beauty of natural selection and evolution. Over millions upon millions of years, this has grown increasingly complex because the ant colony is itself extremely complex and able to sniff out this sort of manipulation if the ant is acting at all weird. So that is all the more pressure on the fungus to evolve to avoid detection and really pull off this 
just yeah. astoundingly complex, devious manipulation. And that's how we get the zombie. I mean, he, it's so delicate, that process in infiltrating the colony. And they even have to time it right. The, you know, the fungus has to time it right so that when the ant is leaving the colony, that's when it releases all the chemicals and finally taking over the brain to make it go 10 inches up and bite the leaf and everything. It's just so interesting how these things work. And uh, you were saying earlier, it does uh, originate in the rainforest, but there are some here in the United States as well. In uh, South Carolina, I think uh, we have a, a, a certain uh, type of this fungus as well. Yeah, and that's actually where it gets, if you can believe it, all the more incredible because uh, in the southern United States, you, of course, have trees that will shed their leaves once a year. And that, of course, would be bad for the fungus if the fungus is ordering the ant to bite onto the vein of a leaf. That means it's going to tumble out of the tree and lose its perch above the colony. So what has happened here in the southern United States, as well as other temperate climates around the world, is the fungus doesn't order the ant to bite onto the vein of a leaf, but instead the branch or a twig, which is a perch that it can maintain year-round, even as the leaves fall off the tree. The problem there is that that's a little bit more delicate of a perch. It's easier to get a purchase on the vein of a leaf by biting into it. So what actually happens here in the United States is as the fungus is ordering the ant to bite onto the twig. It's not such a good purchase, but then orders the ant to wrap its legs around the twig and then grows as the fungus grows out of the legs and kind of attaches them to that stem. And that's just all the more power to, to purchase there and you know get a good grasp because in this temperate climate, the fungus can't develop nearly as quickly as it does in the rainforest, where it's nice and warm and, and humid. It actually develops over the course of a year, and it will overwinter just sitting there on a stem, biding its time. And then once the spring comes around, it will then finally erupt out of the back of the head of the ant as it does in the rainforest, oh, whereas, you know, in the rainforest, it does it in a number of days as opposed to months upon months. So it's really fascinating how in different parts of the world, the fungus is uniquely adapted to really ruin the day yeah. of the ant in a, in a very unique way. It's such a creepy, cool story. And I've seen the picture of the fungus growing out of the ant's head and it looks pretty crazy. We're going to link to your article. This is all part of a book that you wrote called Plight of the Living Dead. Tell us about the book. Yeah, so it turns out that the fungus is just one of the many, many manipulators among parasites in the animal kingdom. So it turns out that this is across a different species. So worms do it to crickets. They will order the crickets to jump into water, which is not, of course, great for the cricket, which can drown or be eaten by a fish. And it's at that point the worms erupt and then mate. That's uh, a particular kind of manipulation. Rabies actually is a, a very well-known parasitic manipulator that does it usually to raccoons and possums and things like that, but can also get into the human brain. So the book is about the wide range of parasites, the really incredible range of parasites, more than you would ever imagine, that can take over the minds of their hosts in really unique ways, whether that's by releasing chemicals or physically altering structures in the brain. So it's called Play the Living Dead. And yes, it's it's uh, what I hope is a fascinating exploration of this very strange kingdom of species that are uh, really ruining the days of their hosts. Just reading about the ants in and of itself is so interesting. So thank you very much, Matt Simon, staff writer at Wired, author of Plight of the Living Dead. Check out the book. Thank you for joining us. All right, that's it for us this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. 
Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition. Thank you.